This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Uh, I'm Andy. You're listening to 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. I've got Vivian Langford on the line to tell us all about the show. Hey, Viv. Hi, Andy. How I'm are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Look, I, I didn't have to go to Antarctica for this show, but oh. the next <laughs> the next best thing was I went to Hobart and I went to the Antarctic Research Centre. So I thought listeners might be interested to know just how the Antarctic, you know, the sea, the great southern ocean there, actually controls the climate. So it's really important about keeping the emissions down, getting them right down so that the um, that sea doesn't rise and we don't get too much more ice falling into it. Yep. So I thought I'd like to start with some good news. I uh, on Last Friday was the um, World Antarctica Day and on that day it was declared there was a, a uh, in the Ross Sea was declared a large marine protected area and apparently there's more in the pipeline that the EU wants to declare more you know, oh, thousands of kilometres here and I think a healthy ocean is important because it takes in vast quantities of CO2 and the more we protect that ocean it's more healthy. Um, but also the other piece of good news is that there was a recent paper from Melbourne University by a guy called Alexander Nowells. Listeners might like to just look up um, The Guardian, uh, Alexander Nowells, and um, he said that we do have a chance not to trigger massive sea level rise from Antarctica if we do do those radical cuts in coal, oil and gas. Um, Sounds it's, optimistic, it's, doesn't it? It's, it's it's possible, yeah, it's possible, but it's all the more reason to radically cut them. Um, but tonight's show isn't really about uh, those sort of icebergs and land ice. It's about sea ice. And uh, in Hobart, one of the scientists I met was Dr. Jan Lisa, and uh, he talked about sea ice and how it controls the ocean currents right up to Greenland. You know, it's a, a massive sort of system, and they're studying it madly to sort of understand how, you know, what affects it. And that sea ice just grows and then contracts every year. It's this massive seasonal incredible, growth of ice. Yeah. yeah, it's incredible, this expense, expanse of it. Um, and But he also said to me, tell your listeners to watch a YouTube. And I've attached it to the podcast. It's called Chasing Ice. And I watched it last night. It was a short YouTube, but it was this cameraman who just happened to be somewhere where uh, some ice, uh, like a whole cliff of ice was falling into the ocean and mm. he'd been waiting for days and then suddenly something triggered it and it went. And it's just an extraordinary scene and, and that gives you an idea of the sort of massiveness of everything down there. Awesome. So, yeah, we'll add that to the podcast for sure. Yeah, yeah. and tell us listeners, just Chasing Ice listeners, if you just, just Google Chasing Ice YouTube, you'll find this scene and it's quite interesting to watch. Um and the, so we'll start the show tonight with the first person who I spoke to was at um, University of Tasmania. His name's Corey Peterson, and he'll he made lots of visits to Antarctica, and he's more interested in the krill and the penguins. And you know, you'll get really inspired by him. He's a great speaker. Uh-huh. And uh, then we talked to David Riley, who's who's the communications specialist down at the Antarctic Research Centre, and he talked to me about you know how you communicate science especially when there's a sea of denialists ready to pounce on you. And he said the thing he goes by is to tell it straight. So let's get started and listen to um, Corey first, and then we'll have Yarn and then David. Thanks very much. Thanks, Viv. See you then. Here we go. This is Corey Peterson. Enjoy. Corey Peterson is at the University of Tasmania. He's the Sustainability Manager. And in Christine Milne's book, An Activist Life, she builds her chapter on climate change around a gift of two bottles of Antarctic water, which Corey sent her. She said it was encouraging her. And I'm going to ask Corey to read the note he sent with the bottles of water. Over to you, Corey. Dear Christine, just remember that deep waters can carry quite a punch half a planet away. You are acting locally, but being watched globally. Cheers and good luck, Corey Peterson. Well, tell us where you collected that water and what it meant to you. 
was actually in Terranova Bay, and I was working with scientists that were studying um, sea ice coverage in Antarctic bottom water um, and how how that actually um, starts to flow around the planet. And it all, all starts there, and it's Antarctic bottom water that keeps all the Antarctic or all the currents around the planet going because it sinks quite deeply in Antarctica and then pushes north, and that drives all the oceanic currents um, in the southern hemisphere, and it actually impacts across the equator as well. Um, so it was really exciting to be working with those scientists, in, and it's called nascent Antarctic bottom water. Oh, wow. Well, Christine goes on to say that Antarctic waters do drive the ocean's currents, and they bring all these nutrients up from the deep, which underpins the whole chain of marine life. Could you expand on that, how that works? Yeah, it, for example, if you look off of the um, South American coastline on the Chilean side in particular, there's a, a massive upwelling that happens there because of the oceanic shelf is, is so deep there and it isn't a long continental shelf. Um, and so those Antarctic bottom waters do grab those nutrients and as they surface up in that space, it's one of the most productive, um, biologically productive um, areas of water on the planet. Well... I talked to you a bit before and you mentioned krill, which is not everybody's, um, you know, front of mind subject, but it's one of the keystone species, isn't it? And I wonder how the warming waters now and acidification are affecting the krill. Now, krill, um, they actually move in, in vast swarms, um, and you can actually see them going past as these giant orange mobs, swarmy-looking things that move through the water, and that's what whales and penguins in particular search for because that's their food base, um, and they, they in turn obviously drive the food web, so they're, they're the base level of that. They rely on a, a good sea ice coverage to forage on and, and grow as, as smaller krill larvae, um, and so less Antarctic sea ice means fewer krill. Now, unfortunately, for the whales and the penguins and the seals, krill is also looked at as an amazing resource by humans for um, easy-to-capture protein. So what you'll find is uh, particular nations, such as Russia, will send trawlers down there, and they will follow the, the whales and the, the uh, penguins to find these vast swarms of krill, and then they, they just sort of scoop them all up out of the mouth of the babes, as they say. But what about climate change, the warming waters? Is that actually affecting the biology of krill? Uh, well, it's actually impacting the population of the krill. So the the, the um, differing times of sea ice um, expansion and contraction is impacting krill, you know, because they have a particular cycle they follow in breeding and everything. Um, so that's changing it. The amount of sea ice and the variability increasing from year to year is, is starting to negatively impact the population. Well, let's talk about penguins. You mentioned them hunting. Please don't tell me the penguins are deeply threatened. Oh, some species of penguins are very reliant on sea ice and krill. Um, some eat other things such as silverfish and such as well, um, so they have a little bit broader palates um, than some penguin species. But, yes, yeah, some, some are actually decreasing in population and others are increasing. Well, what sort of scientific research have you been in or do you know is happening with penguins? What are they looking for? Oh, there's the, the full full range of basic ecosystem understanding of penguins' parts in the ecosystem, but then there's also the, like the research I supported, which was physiological development of penguin chicks. Um, and the, the PhD student that I was working with, he was actually just trying to quantify it and do his PhD, and I'm more of an applied scientist, and you know, how does this impact uh, public policy and environmental management? And so to me, I was looking at basically how much krill does it take to grow a penguin, um, and that's how I was looking at it, because then you can use that in policy settings about what would be an allowable catch to maintain the populations of penguins and whales and seals that are out there once you work out how many they need to have in the environment to eat. Mm -hmm. So how much extra, as it were, in the ecosystem is there that humans could, could actually harvest without impacting negatively? Well, how have these policies evolved? Are there policies now that would eventually constrain all of this uh, trawling for krill? Oh, there's lots of marine protected areas around Antarctica now, and um, last year um, the Ross Sea itself became a marine protected area with, which has very clear quota limits around fish and krill and things like that within those. Um, and I must say that I'm not fully up on what's happened in the last year or two um, in the policy setting, but there is some good news out there, uh, but there's still quite a bit of fishing going on down there of all sorts of species, not just krill. Mm. Well, whales, for example. 
Oh, well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We will hear about that. What about, we've done a few programs on seaweed this year as a source of food, but also as sequestration of carbon. And uh, Tim Flannery's book, you know, recent book called Sunshine and Seaweed, featured that. What about, um, I believe there are kelp forests all around Tasmania. Do you know much about them? Or how that, the marine habit of the, habitat of the kelp forests is, um, you know, being changed? Um, Technically, I should be directing you to a scientist that yes. studies that um, but yeah. you know anecdotally I understand that the kelp forests on the east coast of Tasmania in particular are basically been devastated um, from the warming ocean temperatures as well as various other invasive species that have come in that have been eating them away so mm. our whole east coast ecosystem and biome is changing tr- drastically. Mm. Well, you're a sustainability expert. What? There's no police force to come in and <laughs> protect that, is there? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm unsure about that one. <laughs> well, I'm not quite sure what you would do other than address climate change mm. itself and try to limit the, the further change of our ocean waters and our ocean temperatures coming down. Yeah. yeah. Well... I mean, but more protected. I think I spoke to a Greenpeace person who said they have about 40% of the ocean really they want to put into marine protected parks. Yeah, that's uh, that's right. I've yeah. heard that as well, and I'm fully supportive of that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I just think humans need to be a little bit more aware of, of their um, specific and general impact on the environment and, mm-hmm. and our uh, impacts on biodiversity by our harvesting of things and changing environments, etc. Well, I've been thinking about this since I spoke to the people at ACRC. If we succeed in cutting emissions in the next 30 years, let's say, what else would be needed for sustainability in Antarctica? You mentioned stopping, say, this um, over-harvesting of krill, but what other things would be necessary to maintain sustainability? Well, if if humanity does manage to limit its uh, emissions to try to to meet the Paris target of two degrees, now we're on track for three is my understanding, um, we can start to do things that make us carbon positive, as it were, where we're actually sequestering more CO2, so we're actually trying to pull that back out of the atmosphere. But we have locked in significant change um, for the environment, and that will impact Antarctica like anywhere else, if not more so, especially on the Antarctic Peninsula. Yeah. Do you know if there's a limit to how much the ocean, especially the Great Southern Ocean, a limit to how much CO2 it can take? I mean, would there be a point where it's full up and it starts to, um, you know... Yeah, I'd be talking outside my expertise yeah. area on that. But uh, yes, I mean, there's this threshold levels for everything. Yeah. Um, and I would imagine that a certain level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is, is actually going to cause drastic change. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my Antarctic crews, as I was actually supporting um, a, a scientist, a geologist that was um, using jumbo piston cores, which are these amazingly huge, you know, 1,200 meter sort of deep, um, basically mud grabbing instruments that you, you get a you get a sediment core, um, and what he was showing us what was coming up and and uh, the bathymetry of the ocean bottom is that there have been in the in the long term past rapid changes in the Antarctic climate mm-hmm. where sea, sea sea ice shelves and and glacier fronts have retreated you know literally kilometers in less than a decade um, you know and you can actually see that in the ocean bottom. Corey Peterson is the Sustainability Manager at the University of Tasmania. What message are you trying to get through to them by making the university sustainable and cutting carbon emissions and all of that, given the enormity of climate leadership that will be on their backs? I think the most important thing is to is for the institution of the university, whether it's the University of Tasmania or others, is to be authentic in their own mission and and put out the mission statement that you recognise the, the cr- catastrophic severity of what we're confronting around climate change. But what can we do on the ground as individuals, as groups, as the sector to to address that? I mean, we can all wring our hands, but until we actually get on the ground and, and work together. So here at the University of Tasmania, we've got the Institute of Marine Antarctic Studies, world-class researchers. They're on the IPCC panels and, you know, writing all these amazing research papers and gathering the data that tells us this is a problem, we need to act. Uh, and so students working with them, obviously, are getting that message. I work in the operational and the sort of the teaching and learning side of the university, and what my goal is to 
have this institution be authentic in its waste management, in its recycling, in its renewable energy installations. Um, we've just become the second Australasian institution to be certified carbon neutral because this is happening now. We need to act now. We don't need targets for 2030, 2050. We need to address it now. And so to, for, for students to see that their, their university is actually authentically addressing the issues that are being put out by the researchers to say this is a problem necessarily imbues in them some at least familiarity with the concepts that, that we're talking about, but the opportunities for them to actually get involved through internships and different student engagement programs and within their coursework, their breadth units and everything, to come up with what are the solutions? What can you as an individual do? How can you influence your organization? or your sector to make that change that's necessary to address the problem because there's no point waiting on governments, especially federal governments, because they're followers. They pretend to lead. They follow. They follow what the cities are doing. They follow what communities are doing. They follow what states are doing. Um, and until they're pushed into it, they don't make national laws and national changes. And so you need to go by sector by sector and actually authentically show students and show your community what can be done and do it yourself. And we're the first generation to feel the impact of climate change, we're the last generation that can do something about it. We only get one home. We only get one planet. There's no plan B. Well, this radio program is from Beyond Zero Emissions, and we've gone sector by sector where you could cut emissions to zero and beyond. So the drawdown also. But I just to finish, I know I'm taking your time, but the last idea is what about to get the total population au fait with the idea that we're in a crisis? What do you think about a carbon allowance, which they looked at in Britain and they said it was an idea before its time, but a carbon allowance, so people would just cap their carbon at the moment. That is one policy method that could be could be used. It's a very interesting one. Um, that you know, there's pros and cons to that. There's equity levels. How do you determine what your carbon allowance is in the Western world, developing world, you know, de other developed areas on the planet? I mean, how do you determine who has what? And then how do you stop coercion of of people, sort of like you know, organ donations of mm. you know, you've got two kidneys, give me one because I need it because I'm you know I'm rich and powerful and mm. whatever. I mean, how do you how do you stop all of that from happening? Um, I'm not saying it's a bad idea, and I don't necessarily think it's before its time. I just don't think the conditions are right mo in most of the planet for that. It would be interesting for a particular country or the European Union or something to say, we're going to implement this and we're going to give this a go and see how it works and demonstrate it and pilot it for the planet, as it were. Growing wiser Like the knife that cuts the tear well, look, you and I sitting here in 2017, and who knows what's the next 20 or 50 years it will bring. But as you say, a lot of the climate change is already locked in. And I'd like to know, seeing as you sent that message to Christine, like a politician, and encouraging her to go on fighting as strongly as she has, what are your reflections on this time that we're living in now, uh, where governments seem so inadequate? for the climate challenge they face and citizens, a lot of them, like a lot of people I know, seem to be looking the other way. Uh, yeah, so that was nearly 20 years ago that I sent those vials of yeah. Antarctic bottom water to Christine. And, yeah, it's been very depressing <laughs> since then, I must say. But if you look around the world and ignore many of the national governments, it, in, um, you'll find there's a lot of activity in renewable energy at the city level, at the state level, um, the sub-national level, as it were. I'm quietly hopeful that humanity will rise to the challenge, but I'm not all that convinced that we will do it quickly enough to save the, the sheer amazing biodiversity of the planet. Um, yeah, so I, I have some reservations and I have some grieving that I regularly do about what I see as being lost, um, just the species diversity and the ecosystem diversity and mm -hmm. such. Um, and I sort of feel bad for future generations that mm -hmm. will only see it on our videotapes. Mm. What about the future for Antarctica? A lot of tourists are going there. Are they just going before it all disappears? <laughs> 
It, it's, it, it is actually an incredibly well-regulated tourist market down there, and it's probably one of the most impressive self-regulating groups. They, they do have certain regulations that come through the Antarctic Treaty, but they've actually proposed many of those things themselves. They stay away from penguin colonies. They say, you know, it's, their impact is really regulated because they don't want to kill the golden goose. They want to protect what's there. And the ones that are down there generally, as far as I can tell, the ones I've worked with, love the place and want to protect it. But they want people to see it and experience it so that they'll go back and advocate for its protection as well. So thank you very much. So that was Corey Peterson, Sustainability Manager at University of Tasmania here in Sandy Bay. from her album The Knife That Cuts a Tear and that track was called Inside Go back to bed The ice in Hobart and I'm at the Antarctic Climate and Ecosystem Cooperative Research Centre and Dr Jan Lieser is here to speak with us. He's a marine glaciologist and he started in the Northern Hemisphere in the Arctic and he's now spent some time in the Antarctic. So welcome Jan. Could you start by telling us about the sea ice uh, phenomenon that happens in Antarctica? I know Antarctica itself is about the size of Australia and then with the sea ice in the winter... 
well, you can correct me. I mean, <laughs> this is very general for my audience, but it, it, the sea ice is massively expands that land. So explain about that. So Antarctica is probably twice the size of Australia, <laughs> and um, when the sea ice grows to its maximum extent, it doubles the size of Antarctica again. So it, it's a massive white space, mm. more or less centered around the South Pole. And we have nowadays really good satellite technology to um, keep an eye on the state of the sea ice from space. And that's basically what I'm doing. Um, I've, I've came into this role um, from the Arctic, as you said. Um, I'm a remote sensing scientist. I've studied a lot of um, remote sensing data, different types and different sensors. And nowadays, I'm researching how the sea ice behaves in the time and space space, and um, I'm advising ships operating in Antarctica at the moment, so we have just commenced the shipping season for this new summer, and we have Aurora Australis currently heading into Davis Station to resupply the station. And that's only my my first customer for the season, really. But um, there's more shipping happening in Antarctica, and these ships need the best possible advice to avoid damage and yeah. get well, stuck. Listeners might remember the Frank Hurley photographs back in the historic times. They had wooden boats, and the boat was just squeezed by the ice, you know, caught out. But the last time I spoke to someone from here, I think it was Professor Warby, he said to me that it was quite extraordinary that the sea ice was expanding in the south, but in the north it was retracting. And I thought... How did you explain that? We're having global warming. <laughs> Surely it should be retracting here too. But what's happening? Sea ice is re- re- reacting to two different spheres. One is the big ocean, which is a massive heat storage, and one is the atmosphere. And and sea ice itself is very is, is really only a tiny little layer in between these massive spheres. And understanding both of these spheres before we can understand the tiny little layer in between is really crucial and really important. And there are um, certain feedback mechanisms between the atmosphere and the ocean and then the sea ice in the middle, um, which sometimes surprise um, the, the, the researchers as well as the public. Mm-hmm. And um, just this year, in fact, we have seen a massive reduction in the sea ice again. So the maximum sea ice extent for 2017 was much, much lower again than it used to be on average so even though we saw um, a large increase three years ago we have now seen a reverse of that large increase and almost the same large decrease as well so it's it's swings and roundabouts really Um, it's it's a highly connected interconnected system which feeds back feeds back between atmosphere ocean cryosphere and it's a really complex system. Well, I believe that the ice sheet plays a fundamental role in controlling global climate and sea level. Can you explain that? How is it so fundamental? Okay, we need to distinguish between the ice sheet and the sea ice. So the ice sheet is accumulated snow over time, over hundreds and thousands of years. Um, The sea ice is frozen seawater, which grows during winter and almost completely disappears during summer at least in Antarctica in the Arctic the story is slightly different Um, but the sea ice does not influence the sea level so once it's frozen from the sea it actually melts back into the sea Mm. Um, sea shelves uh, sorry ice shelves and and glaciers are a completely different story to that Mm. so um, when these ice shelves, for example, break up and collapse. Um, then we have a massive input of fresh water into the ocean, which um, freezes a bit more readily than seawater. So seawater has a salt content, and that salt content um, allows the seawater to freeze at lower temperatures, which is roughly minus 1.8 instead of 0 degrees yeah. Celsius. So um, this, the sea ice and the sea level is a completely different yeah, story. Right. And, but uh, what about the ocean circulation? 
ocean circulation is crucial in, in the sea ice story. So when sea ice forms, um, the brine and the salt content of the sea ice is not incorporated into the crystal structure of the sea ice and therefore expelled. And uh, when gravity pulls, the, this brine is actually sinking down to the, to the bottom of the ocean. And that is the initial impulse for the global ocean circulation, actually. So, therefore, the sea ice itself plays a vital and crucial role in controlling the ocean currents, not on a local scale, but on a global scale. Mm -hmm. And the advance and retreat of sea ice, particularly in the Antarctic, but also in the Arctic, plays a crucial role in keeping that overturning circulation, as we call it. So, all the all the ocean basins are interconnected mm -hmm. by a large which we figure as, as a conveyor belt mm -hmm. and the engine room of that conveyor belt is actually where the sea ice forms so therefore it has a massive climate impact yeah. and understanding of um, how much sea ice is formed and where it is formed and where it is melting is crucially important in understanding that part of the climate system. So these fluctuations that you're observing, they may be that we haven't been taking records for thousands of years, really. That's perhaps they, they might be natural fluctuations, but what, what in a low year, um, what, what difference would you see in that conveyor belt? We haven't fully the picture of the conveyor belt yet. What we can say is that parts of the Indian Ocean, for example, were warmer than usual, mm. and um, that can explain some of the reduction in that area that we are seeing. Um, there's, there's large um, climate circulation, atmospheric circulation patterns like senior southern annual mode and, and the new southern oscillation and, and these um, um, large large-scale interhemispheric even patterns um, that have a vital role in, in allowing the distribution of sea ice. When we look at sea ice from space, we only see the surface. Mm. So that is um, something of a shortcoming in our understanding. So we can see how much sea ice is there in terms of aerial coverage, mm. X and Y, what we don't see is how thick the sea ice is. So mm. we, we don't see the third dimension, basically, at least not from space. Mm. And that is a, is a crucial missing piece of the puzzle. Okay, well, I've understood that this, the Southern Ocean is changing as climate change disrupts its normal pattern, perhaps. What's the human contribution to that? That is very hard to distinguish. I'm, I'm not in a position to uh, attribute any of these changes to human, human activities. So what we know is that, um, you know, carbon dioxide, CO2, increases the, the, the temperature. Yeah. And um, we know that the Southern Ocean takes up more CO carbon dioxide um, and therefore increases and, and increases its temperature on, yeah. on various ways and the atmosphere is getting warmer. Which part of that is human-induced is not uh, not discernible from for me anyway. Yeah. There might be um, experts in the field who are more... Well, this is a Centre for Cooperative Research, and I'm just wondering, you know, it must be interesting to be in your field and collaborate with other people, and even in this building, all sorts of specialists. What's, what's it like to be in the centre of something that's now really topical? I did speak to a meteorologist once who said he thought his career would be just in a little back lab doing research quietly, and then he suddenly hit climate change. It became controversial. Is, is that the same for you, that you have very sort of hot conversations? Absolutely. So it, it's really beneficial for us to work with the oceanographer just two doors down from my office and biologists just across the corridor. And um, we regularly, not very often, but regularly go on, on what we call cooperative cruises where um, meteorologists, glaciologists, oceanographers, biologists all work together in in a very special field and a very local field, I should mm. say, on, on highly specialized topics. And it's amazing when all these different stories and different aspects come together. And um, one of those examples is the CS physics and ecosystem experiment, that which we ran twice in 2007 mm. and 12. And both of these cruises have resulted in um, special volumes of peer-reviewed journals. Mm. 
where all these um, interconnected um, research comes together and is published. Published. Well, thank you very much for talking. I, I know we don't talk about Antarctica enough, and I think people think it's too specialised, but it's obviously very sustaining for the whole global system. So. If we look from the Tasmanian point of view, you know, going south, the next stop is Antarctica. Mm. There's nothing left between us and Antarctica. Mm. And that's mm. what we feel when we feel the cold weather, cold wind coming from the south every now and then as well. So thanks for having me. Thank you. So that was Dr. Jan Lisa, a marine glaciologist here at the end of the world. <laughs> Cars are waiting, wind chills wiping speaking to David Riley who's the public affairs manager and so David manages the media and the public relations and he's very kindly introduced me to a couple of scientists here so David could you give us an overview of what this um, cooperative research centre does the ACRC is based here in Hobart at the University of Tasmania's Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies waterfront building we are a federally funded research partnerships so we've got a core membership of, of seven major research institutions including the university CSIRO the Antarctic division and a number of other international agencies and I guess if I was going to try and summarize our reason for existing is that Antarctic science is a, a difficult and costly enterprise mm. and and really much more can be achieved if organisations in the sector pull their resources, their expertise, their people, their scientific findings and undertake that enterprise together. We really are much more capable when we collaborate. So the, the idea of the CRC, we've been going 25 years, was really to, to bring those sort of key players in the sector together because it really does enable each institution to undertake research that they would otherwise be incapable of because we can share, for instance, laboratory facilities, we can share expertise, we can share technical staff. And so our role really is as the hub, as the sort of the, the hub with, with those those other agencies as, as the spokes and we put together teams of experts around sort of specific climate challenges and questions in the Antarctic that really need to be addressed in the national interest. Yeah, well Antarctic is famous for being, um, after the Antarctic Treaty, reserved for science and for peace and cooperation. It's not going to be mined out at the moment and that's a great, wonderful achievement. I think it's a huge area. But also this building, it's got an international flavour even when you walk in the door. There's a big statue of Amundsen, the Norwegian person who did first get to the South Pole and I love that because it's not just your old Scott and Mawson and people that Australians are familiar with but it's, there's Amundsen there and he's honoured. But I get the impression there's a lot of people working here and there's a lot of internet national cooperation is that true absolutely look one of the the things that's really sort of been struck home to me in the four years that i've worked in this role i should add that i'm not a scientist myself no. I, i'm a journalist so i'm in charge of the communications is that really the spirit of internationalism is just so alive and well in the antarctic research mm. sector in this building, I mean, it's, it's a little bit like walking through the UN building in some <laughs> ways. If you, you wander into the lunchroom and you'll see Chinese scientists mixing with the French scientists, South American. Uh, we've, we've got just about every country represented in the world. And one of the great things really about, about where Hobart is today is that we've become such a sort of an epicentre and a sort of a, um, a hub for world-leading Antarctic and Southern Ocean science mm. that now when we post a job advertisement, we don't just get applicants locally. We get applicants streaming in from all around the world, from some of the most reputable institutions uh, and uh, in the field. Mm. So 
you know, from our point of view, we're exceptionally proud <laughs> to be to be a sort of a magnet for this kind of exceptional talent. And and just walk through the building, and you'll you'll hear many many languages spoken in addition to English. Well, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have exceptional talent, and there may be some younger ones listening to this show who are thinking about a career in science and haven't really thought about Antarctic science as being such a hot area. But it's obviously got hotter as the climate is getting hotter. So, David, tell us what a career in climate, you know, so much climate science, but Antarctic science would involve and what would be the benefits of it? Well, the benefits are, Mm -hmm. uh, there's there's no doubt that there's a certain excitement and allure Mm -hmm. to Antarctica. You know, it's fair to say that a lot of the people that come through uh, through our program, our PhD program, yeah. are drawn to the yeah. drawn to this area of research because I suppose it sort of captures a little bit of that excitement of the heroic age of Antarctic um, exploration, the, yeah. the days of Mawson and dog sleds. Yeah. So th- there is that element, and there are opportunities for PhD students to participate very meaningfully in some of the, the sort of major scientific projects that we coordinate down south. So I suppose that's one of the things that firstly attracts people to it. As well, I think more and more these days, people are interested in being part of the solution, yeah. <laughs> if you like. You know, a lot of young people are drawn to our research programs because we're really tackling some of the most fundamental questions that the, that the planet's facing in, in terms of climate change, ocean acidification, um, the warming of the atmosphere, the melting of the ice caps, the rising of the seas and the impacts of these changes locally here in Australia. Students who are interested in some of those those big global issues tend, I suppose, to be drawn to this area of research and as far as that goes, we really are a sort of a, a, a hub of some, some incredible world-leading research. Yes, and I, that idea of being part of the solution attracted me in reading your website. I found, uh, I downloaded some of the documents there and I was very interested in how you help farmers. For example, they found that uh, I think a, an increase in snowfall in Antarctica correlated with a decrease in rainfall in Western Australia, which was very important knowledge for the farmers and there's a pattern involved there. So is that the sort of research practical applications. Could you talk about that? Yeah, certainly. So that's been one of the really interesting bits of research. I mean, we've got program a number of research projects focusing on a wide variety of aspects of Antarctic Southern Ocean science. But the, I think the one you're referring to is specifically around Tessa Vance's work. I should state up front and very clearly that I'm not a scientist, no. but I'll do my best to, to, to sort of summarise why I think that work is so significant and, and how it's sort of changing the way we understand our relationship to Antarctica. Essentially, on any given day, if you look at a wind map of the Southern Ocean, you'll see that there is a vast swirling vortex of winds that mm-hmm. connect the coast of Antarctica and that the Southern uh, the southern part of Australia, that's Western Australia, and then right around up, in the, up the east coast. So we really are, Australia and Antarctica really are connected very intimately. In fact, when you get out of bed in the morning, if you live in Western Australia, South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales or Tasmania indeed, mm. look out the window, the weather you see there was in large part a product of vast processes over the Southern Ocean. So if we can understand some of the processes that drive that at the sort of the decadal climatic level, then we can really start to understand some of the fundamental drivers for the Australian climate. So one of the pieces of research that we've done is to to actually, Australia's drilled a number of ice cores in Antarctica, but one of the most our most significant contributions to climate history is the Law Dome Ice Core. And the work that Tessa Vance and her team has been doing has enabled us to effectively, by looking, I'm going to I'm going to simplify it terribly, yes. by looking at the weather patterns over East Antarctica at any given time, we can actually make a lot of assumptions about the weather in Australia at the same during the same period. For instance, if we see a lot of salt in the ice core record, that means that there was a lot of wind during that period and it was whipping up the surface of the sea, carrying that salt into the sky and then it's come back down 
as snow, and it's layered up over many hundreds, thousands of millions of years. And if we know that it's windy in that particular part of Antarctica, mm. we, we actually can surmise a lot about what's happening in southwest western Australia and up large parts of the east coast of Australia as well because you've got these these large sort of oscillating climate patterns like ENSO you, and you would have heard of um, the IPO interdecadal pacific oscillation or there's ENSO as I say which um, which is the La Nina El Nino uh, oscillation. So I find it, as you know, as a communicator, I find that really exciting that you can go to a place in Antarctica, drill down into the ice, and it can tell you about how much rain was falling in Australia a thousand years ago. It's just <laughs> remarkable. So what we have found out of that research is that, well, a couple of interesting things. The, one of the interesting ones about East Australia is that, in fact... The droughts that we've seen in recent decades in Australia are actually pretty mild on the scale of it. And if you go back to the 1200s, there was a drought of epic proportions that lasted in excess of 40 years and may, would have made the millennium drought seem, you know, seem fairly mild by comparison. And what that tells us is that when we're planning our um, when we're planning for worst-case scenarios in, in water management, we really need to take into account that droughts can get a lot worse than anything we've seen since European arrivals. So some of the work that we're doing on the East Coast is with catchment managers for in southeast Queensland to really help develop reliable and robust models for managing the possibility of the next big drought. OK, my last question's about science communication. Climate change seems to have fallen into a terrible trough uh, attracting denial denialists and I never interview them I just can't be bothered to interview them but I know intellectually it's very hard to explain climate science and yet it's happening you know the climate is being disrupted and then as you say these you know ice cores prove things were much worse at different times eight you know, centuries ago millions of years ago thousands of years ago so how do you sort of feel we have to proceed in communicating about science do we just have to keep it out on the front line keep it out in the public mind or do we allow people to say oh, throw their hands up and it's too complicated or I, I can even deny it i can get away with denying it because no one can disprove well, this has been a terrible issue hasn't it so what what do you feel that's a question that keeps me awake at night <laughs> yes and it's one that I don't think I'm able to give you a, a, a satisfactory answer on. I think, I think ultimately what's going to decide people's minds over the climate debate is how it impacts them directly. I, I, I'm not persuaded that simply putting facts on the table about climate change has done or will change a lot of minds. Having said that, we can, it's not something that we can back away from. And each time that we put out a bit of research... We, we actually do need to consider very carefully how it will be received by, by people who want to distort and cherry-pick the, the research that we put out. And I'll just give you one quick example, if you like. Um, you've spoken to Dr Jan Leeser about some of the counterintuitive fluctuations that we've seen in Antarctic sea ice extent. Yeah. We see, saw just a couple of years ago record Antarctic sea ice extent and then within the space of a couple of years this year we've seen a record minimum extent so it's gone from maximum to a minimum extent in a very short space of time. Very difficult it's still very difficult to, to for us to determine exactly what's driving that but I can tell you that we just communicate the science as, it, as is, and two years ago when we, when we sort of drove a lot of the media interest in the record high sea ice mm. extent, we were the darlings of the sea ice sceptics, oh. and they were quoting our media oh. releases and they were, yeah. they were overjoyed by it. Mm. This year we've, we've put out the same media release about the same issue and it hasn't received any attention at all, okay? So how do, we, how do you deal with that? The only way to deal with it is head-on. So in, or in all of our communications, we're very, very clear to explain that simply because something may seem to prove an aspect of climate science one way or the other, we really do need to look into the complexities. So for sea ice, it's not just the temperature of the water that drives the formation of Antarctic sea ice. It's wind, it's salinity. There's all kinds of other factors, wind direction. 
and in our communications we need to be very we, we, we attempt to be very clear up front so that the, the journalists who are reporting these stories have the facts and that they are also well armed with yeah. the facts at this stage we haven't seen anything in the sea ice conundrum that would suggest that climate change is not a reality in fact quite the opposite yeah. but it's it's just a daily consideration that we need to we need to to make in all of our communications and to do our best to make sure that when we put information out it can't be cherry-picked and distorted yeah. but ultimately people will do with it what what they will and I think it's only when the bottom line is felt in, mm-hmm. with climate change that people will re- that minds will really start to change and I really do see strong evidence that that's happening already yes all right they're feeling it in Bangladesh right now <laughs> Well, exactly. It's undeniable. The evidence for it is everywhere, and you really do have to put your head in the sand at this point. Okay. Thank you very much. So that was David Riley, Public Affairs Manager for the ACE CRC, which, David, what does that stand for? Yes, uh, it's one of the longer acronyms down here in Hobart. It's the Antarctic Climate and Ecosystems Cooperative Research Centre. So that was our update on Antarctica and how it affects the global climate. Thanks tonight to Corey Peterson at the University of Tasmania, David Riley and Dr. Jan Lisa at the Hobart Antarctic Research Centre, ACECRC. Viv love meeting all of them. And thank you also to Christine Rule for the shiver down your spine in her beautiful icy chalet music. Her album is called The Knife That Cuts a Tear. Thanks also to Tiny Tim for a fragment of his song, The Ice Caps Are Melting. Hobart is the hub of a scientific research effort that we can be proud of. All the more reason why we need to get out, get our emissions down. If UK and Chinese citizens can each have a personal carbon footprint of 8 metric tonnes per year, why are we up there with Canada? Each responsible for over 20 metric tonnes each year. Uh, thanks again. I'll play the outro and then we'll hear the self-titled track from Christine Rule's song, The Knife That Cuts a Tear. Thanks once again. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions exports and industry, zero-emissions transport, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio.